Hello, I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist, and you're listening to The World Ahead. This Future Gazing podcast series is focusing on the key themes that will shape the coming year, drawing on the predictions and analysis in our annual publication, The World Ahead 2022, which is out now. This week, we're considering the outlook for the economy and the future of finance. In the years immediately before the pandemic, worrying about inflation seemed as passé as bell-bottom trousers and leaded petrol. But as the global economy clawed its way back from the deep recession induced by COVID-19, inflation has reappeared. The annual rate of inflation has risen to 7% in America, its highest level for four decades, and more than 5% in Britain. And prices have also roared much higher in many emerging markets. Does this signal a return of the chronically high inflation of the 1970s? And what can policymakers do to put such fears to rest? At the end of last year, I asked Larry Summers, Professor of Economics at Harvard University and former US Treasury Secretary, how much he expects consumer prices and the US economy to grow in 2022. I think it's going to be a complex year. I think it's pretty clear that we're going to have inflation at a significant rate. I'd be quite surprised if, barring a big interruption to economic activity, inflation was below 3%, and I wouldn't be surprised at all if inflation exceeded 4%. I think growth is likely to be relatively robust in the first half of the year. Beyond that, it's difficult to make a definite judgment. A lot will depend upon what the Fed does. The challenge we have is that we have an overheated economy that is still growing rapidly and unsustainably. And the challenge that policy faces is going to be managing that economic growth in a way that is ultimately sustainable and hitting the uh, brakes on a car that's going rapidly downhill in a controlled way is a hard thing to do. And that's the challenge that we're facing. A lot of this depends upon the policy response. I mean, what we have seen in the last few months is a general recognition of what unfortunately I have feared for quite some time, which is that the policy path we're on doesn't lead to a sustainable economic growth path with any concept of price stability. And so if we're going to have a return to price stability defined as being somewhere near a 2% inflation target, that's going to be dependent on what the Federal Reserve does. What the Federal Reserve's pain tolerance will be is really quite unclear at this point. I think we have allowed things to go sufficiently long that we're not going to simply get inflation down by announcing that we want it down and that we're determined to have it down. We're going to have to take steps that have meaningful impacts on the economy if we're going to bring inflation down. So what specific steps would you advise then? How do you think they should be responding? 
I think the Fed needs to make clear that overheating is the primary concern for uh, policy at this moment while being vigilant. And it needs to hold open the prospects of four tightenings, at least, over the next year with the recognition of two-sided uncertainty, that it could be necessary to have more. And of course, depending on what happens in the economy, it could be appropriate to have less. But some schedule like that. And finally, you've said that excessive inflation could eventually create a scenario that brings Donald Trump back into power. How does that work? I think the evidence is that whatever we in academic economics may think, people believe that inflation is stealing from their paychecks. We can explain that the reason people get higher wage increases is inflation, and then there are also higher price increases, and so it all works out the same. We economists can explain that. That is not how the vast majority of the world's people think. And so higher unemployment affects 2 or 3% of the population. Higher inflation feels like it's taking from the whole population. And so the political evidence, I think, is pretty clear that high inflation is a real problem for incumbents and is a particularly large problem for progressive incumbents. See Richard Nixon's election in 1968, see Ronald Reagan's election in 1980, see Margaret Thatcher's election in 1979. And so I think at a sense when people are looking for the country to be in control, looking at what's happening to the prices they're paying, is one way they judge whether the country is in control. And that's why I think it's terribly important to the prospects for reasonable and sound governance that governments show its basic competence by keeping inflation under control. Henry Kerr is The Economist's economics editor and Alice Fullwood is our Wall Street correspondent. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello, Tom. Henry, if I can start with you, I spoke to Larry Summers right at the end of last year. How do his predictions look now? And what do you think is going to happen with inflation this year? Well, I think it's important to situate Larry Summers' predictions in context of what happened last year, when, of course, he predicted high inflation. Almost everyone else predicted low inflation. The Fed thought inflation in 2021 would be below its target at the end of the year not well above it as it is. And he was right. So, of course, that makes everyone a bit nervous about saying that he's going to be wrong in 2022. But again, he is well above what others think. So in the last round of Fed forecasts, they said inflation would be 2.6% in 2022. Professional forecasters say 2.4%. And he just told you that he wouldn't be surprised if it was above four. I think I would be surprised if it was above four. I think that some of the factors that caused inflation to rise in 2021 are going to run out of steam. So you think of the rebound in energy prices. I'm thinking of the fact that so much consumer demand has been focused on goods as a result of the pandemic. And as the economy continues to move out of the pandemic and spending switches back towards services, I think that should take some of the inflationary pressure out of the economy. That said, I'd still be closer to Summers' prediction than 
that of the Fed and that of professional forecasters, I think inflation is probably going to be above 3% and therefore still feel uncomfortably high for policymakers in 2022. And what can we expect from central banks this year, both in the US and elsewhere? Well, since you spoke to Summers, the Fed has actually set out a timetable consistent with what he said, certainly about ending QE or new QE purchases early in the year. Those purchases will end by March, which in the eyes of markets gives the Fed an opportunity to begin raising interest rates in March. And indeed, I think that's now likely to happen. And we may see the Federal Reserve raise interest rates perhaps four times in 2022. That will make the Fed something of an outlier. I don't think that other central banks are going to be so hawkish, partly because America's inflation problem is worse. Perhaps an intermediate case would be Britain and the Bank of England, where the Bank of England has already raised interest rates and will probably follow that up in 2022. But if you look at the eurozone, in the European Central Bank's forecast, it still thinks that inflation is going to undershoot its target once the effect of high energy prices subsides. And it has discouraged people from expecting interest rate increases in 2022. So I think it's relatively unlikely we'll see them. But we are going to see central banks stepping back from their asset purchases, which are more associated with the sort of dire economic straits of 2020 than the kind of world economy we have at the moment. And I think the central banks are a bit behind the curve in getting out of asset purchases. So so I think we are going to see more hawkish policy globally from central banks in 2022. But the Fed is going to be the biggest mover. So how similar is this situation to the 1970s when we also had a period of high inflation? And how is it different this time around? Well, it's similar in that it has caught policymakers by surprise, that the policymakers have continually promised that temporary factors are distorting the figures and pushing inflation up and will go away and then have had to row back on that. The Fed has had to do that this year. It's similar in that there has been the emergence of some dodgy ideas about what the root causes of inflation are and therefore how to fight it. So recently we've seen the Biden administration saying that its antitrust policies are an inflation-fighting tool which is something that Nixon also said in the 1970s and isn't a very credible view among economists. But this is not a 70s rerun, in my opinion. It's different in that the problem is simply less severe. So in the 70s, CPI reached well over 10% in the US. And it's also different in that for all its mistakes and its failure to forecast what happened in 2021, the Fed and central banks everywhere are in more control. They have a better idea how monetary policy works and they know that it's important for controlling inflation. And that's why we've seen the shift in recent weeks that we've seen in expectations about what the Fed is going to do. Back in the 1970s, there were still fundamental debates about whether interest rates and tighter monetary policy could control inflation. And nobody really doubts that now. The debate is whether it's appropriate or not. So I'd say we're in a different place, but it's nonetheless novel. You know, this period of high inflation is amazing to anyone who was reporting on the stubbornly low inflation of the late 2010s before the pandemic, like I was. So it's the most similar time to the 1970s that I've experienced in my career reporting on the world economy. But I do think it's fundamentally different.
Alice, what's Wall Street's view of all of this? These inflection points in central bank policy, you know, the decision to start scaling back asset purchases, the very first rate hike after a period of easy monetary policy are always completely obsessed over by Wall Street. And this time around has been no different. You have a flurry of coverage and people updating their views on precisely what they think the Fed will be doing this year. People have moved quite quickly to actually what Larry Summers is thinking, for instance, um, that idea of four rate hikes. As recently as October, you know, no one was really expecting that. But in recent days, Jamie Dimon said that he thought the Fed had time to raise rates four times this year. Goldman Sachs changed their base forecast to four rate hikes in 2022. There's now a 75% chance that they'll do their first rate hike at the March meeting. So a lot of Wall Street has moved very aggressively to expect a lot of activity from the Fed this year. And that has really been reflected in how markets are moving as well. So since the beginning of the year, the 10-year yield on the Treasury has climbed by almost 30 basis points. It ended the year at around 1.5%. It's now at 1.8% almost. That is why stocks have also had a sort of rough start to the year. Um, They're down almost 3% from where they started. So this is a very turbulent time. It is the only thing Wall Street is talking about. Everyone is obsessed with it. But Wall Street do seem to be expecting a lot of action from the Fed in 2022. Thank you, Henry and Alice. Now, something else that's been on the rise in recent months is enthusiasm for cryptocurrencies and other kinds of digital coins. More on that in a moment. But first, a quick reminder. If you want unlimited access to The Economist app and website, or a printed copy sent directly to your door every week, you need to subscribe. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. Unless you've been living under a rock, you'll have heard of cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin and Ethereum, new kinds of digital coins that live on decentralised blockchains. Once the obsession of a few enthusiasts, they've emerged as a new asset class now worth more than $3 trillion. But they aren't the only digital coins in town. Governments around the world are also considering launching their own kind of digital currencies, known as central bank digital currencies, or CBDCs, which are not based on public blockchains like Bitcoin is. The country that has gone furthest down this route is China, with its digital yuan, or ECNY. Professor Michael Sung is co-director of the Fudan Fanhai Fintech Research Centre at Fudan University in Shanghai. He's also a fintech advisor and investor and chairman of Carbon Blue Innovations, a firm that specialises in digital finance innovation for developing countries. He's been watching the development of central bank digital currencies, including China's, very closely. I asked him to explain why and when China began experimenting with a CBDC. The PBOC, the People's Bank of China, which is uh, China's central bank, had already been researching its CBDC strategy since 2014. But then what happened was Facebook developed the Libra private side stablecoin in June of 2019. And that was really a shot that was heard around the world. It really got regulators around the world to look at the space because Facebook represents about 2.8 billion people. That's basically the combined populations of both China and India. 
And if a private sector company could issue its own form of money and potentially disintermediate the central banks and their sovereignty over the money supply, that's a big deal. So because of that specific moment in history, actually China really decided to accelerate its timetable to deploy the digital currency electronic payment project. Now it's rebranded to ECNY officially. So the electronic CNY, they decided to uh, do an announcement about the impending commercialization of that currency at the end of that year. Now, ironically, the Facebook digital currency has kind of gone nowhere, hasn't it? But at the same time, we've seen this extraordinary growth in enthusiasm for cryptocurrencies. Is China's motivation here also that it's worried about people using cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin rather than the sorts of currencies issued by central banks? Yeah, so actually uh, blockchain being the underlying technology, you can think of it as next generation internet, okay, is a technology and is fully supported by the China central government. Unregulated crypto, okay, which is based off of blockchain technology, such as Bitcoin and maybe Ethereum and all the various sort of privately issued digital tokens are not supported. Okay, That has been very recently in the last year completely stamped out. So even Bitcoin mining is now uh, not allowed. However, China is making a very strong play to regulate digital assets. And so the regulated form of digital assets will be allowed on the mainland, starting first, of course, with the ECNY. But then beyond that, I think China is also gearing up to allow other forms of of digital assets that are regulated, things like securities, like stocks and bonds, which can be digitized. What has China done so far with regard to testing this new digital currency? In 2020, there were four, uh, initially four pilot zones, which were allowed to test ECNY sort of uh, pilots and test beds. Okay, that included Xiongan, which is uh, a new city being developed near Beijing, Suzhou, Shenzhen, and Chengdu. Okay, since that time of four initial test beds, now ECNY testing has basically become much more uh, broader based across the whole country in all the economically important zones in the country, in the Peru Delta, what we call the Greater Bay Area, the Yangtze River Delta, where Shanghai is, and even out west uh, where Chengdu is. So now there's a lot of holistic testing across the country in various different forms. Okay. And are consumers actually using it? I understand there's going to be a push to get people to use it around the Beijing Winter Olympics. Is that going to be where consumers start using it for the first time? Or are some people actually already using this? Yes. Various banks have now issued their own ECNY compatible digital wallet, the four policy banks, as well as a few private sector banks, such as my bank, which is Alibaba's digital bank, and WeBank, which is Tencent's or WeChat's uh, digital bank. So all of them have issued digital wallets. Mu Tanshun, the Digital Currency Institute director, has indicated about uh, 140 million citizens have downloaded that digital wallet. The last benchmark was about 9.7 billion US dollars worth of transactions as of November 2021. Have you used it yourself? What's it like? Uh, Yeah, I mean, basically, it's not very different than any other digital wallet. In China, people have been using either Alipay or WeChat Pay, the two dominant mobile payment apps in the country that represents roughly 96% of all digital payments in the country. The interface is not much different than that. It looks like a basic digital wallet, right? The only difference is that now when we go to a merchant POS point of sale, before there would only be two types of QR codes. There'll be an Alipay QR code and a WeChat Pay QR code. Now there's a third 
ECNY QR code. And all merchants, because it is considered legal tender, will be forced to accept that legal tender. One claim that is sometimes made about CBDCs is that they sort of grant central banks superpowers, the ability to monitor flows within the economy. Is that part of the uh, motivation here as well? Uh, Absolutely. One of the major things, as an example, is that the central government is trying to promote agricultural development in the rural parts of the country. They have a lot of money to be given as subsidies to support this. Okay. However, in the past, they have no idea where those subsidies went. Now, every citizen in the country, every business can be given a official ECNI wallet. And therefore, those payment flows can be, one, zapped directly to the intended recipient, right? And two, those payment flows can be aggregated to give a more fine-grained resolution to the central bank to be allowed for fiscal as well as monetary policy into the future. Okay, now another way of putting that is that that's sort of a new kind of surveillance. But on the other hand, that ability to surveil the economy was previously in the hands of private companies. Do people worry about that? Um, You know, in the international media, a lot of to-do is made about the fact of the ECNY being able to extend the surveillance capabilities of the central government. I would argue that basically, you know, nothing has changed with the adoption of the ECNY, right? Because before 96% of the payments was through companies like Alipay, the central government already had the ability to, you know, peek into the accounting of those uh, private firms anytime they wanted. So actually, they had full surveillance capabilities. It sounds like China is furthest down the road of launching a central bank digital currency. What can other countries, which are also considering this, learn from China's experience? Actually, China is not the first. Last year, the Bahamas sand dollar was issued. Recently, Cambodia issued their Bakong initiative as well. And then more recently, Nigeria has issued their e-Naira. So there's about five countries which have already issued or are imminently issued. China being the next one in line by February of this year. So the vast preponderance of uh, central banks are in sort of a research stage. This includes, by the way, the U.S. Fed. The Boston branch of the U.S. Fed has commissioned MIT to look at the implementation details of a potential digital dollar, right? Most, I would say, active development of commercializable CBDC development is happening in Asia with seven of the top CBDC projects coming from the region. So there's quite a lot of activity. And then there's a lot of other countries playing catch up. Alice, as we heard there, China has quite ambitious plans to get more people using its central bank digital currency this year. Is this something other countries are watching closely? And do you think they can learn lessons from China's experience? I think the Chinese experiment is definitely something that a lot of central banks will be watching very closely. What you've seen over the past few years, in particular since the advent of Facebook's Libra, as Michael pointed out, is a lot of central banks grapple with the question of philosophically, do they want to issue a central bank digital currency? And if you look at surveys done by the Bank for International Settlements, a sort of big club of central bankers, almost all central banks are considering this question now, and a lot of them seem enthusiastic to potentially issue one of these things. The phase that a lot of central banks are in now is how do we literally do it? What technology do we need? What kind of rails do we need to run payments on? And how should we do accounts? And how do we make it so that you know foreigners can use it and locals can use it and that poor people can use it and rich people can use it, people without bank accounts? You know, all of these very technical very structural problems with how you build a CBDC such that it operates and performs the same functions as money does now in your economy. And China is essentially wrestling with all those questions and trying to come up with solutions. And 
its experience in particular with the Olympics will play around with a lot of those questions. For example, they're going to try and make it so that foreigners can use it, which is a, a difficult problem. So people will be watching very closely and hopefully they'll learn from China's experience that it, it can be done. Now, China has also, of course, cracked down very hard on unregulated, decentralised cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. What do you think the global outlook for crypto regulation is in 2022? And will we see other countries trying to push people towards other sorts of digital coins like CBDCs instead? I do think this isn't necessarily an either or situation. So in China, the reason they don't like unregulated decentralized cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin is partly because they think they're this potential threat to monetary sovereignty. They're a potential alternative currency that people could use to do transactions that China would rather be able to see and regulate and observe and all of those things. But in general, the push for CBDCs to be a token that people use is driven by slightly separate incentives. It's the incentive to replace physical cash going out of circulation with something else, some other money that central banks issue that people can use. So I think a lot of other countries have some similar concerns about unregulated decentralized cryptocurrencies as China does, that they are very volatile and that they're sort of not really suitable for retail investors, that they are totally unregulated, as you say. And there's this potential monetary sovereignty threat. Well, let's talk about America, because there the SEC is saying that it ought to be the regulatory body that oversees crypto. And the tech industry is saying, no, we don't like the look of you at all. We'd like our own regulator or a different regulator. What's going on there then? Well, it's possible that the crypto industry doesn't really like Gary Gensler, the chair of the SEC, because he does actually know what he's talking about. He taught a course on cryptographic principles and cryptocurrencies at MIT before he was the chair of the SEC. So he, unlike a lot of other politicians or regulators that they can point to, they can't say that he's not qualified to regulate them. And he is trying to get new powers from Congress to regulate this industry properly. I do think conceptually that the SEC probably is the right body to be regulating crypto. It regulates all of America's big financial markets and crypto is becoming a big financial market as well. And so in 2022, you will probably see some movement towards creating a regulator or creating new powers for the SEC to regulate crypto. But uh, I don't precisely know how that will play out. Henry, what will you be watching for this year in this area? Well, when you talk to central bankers, quite often they will indicate that they're not actually entirely sure what it is that they're trying to achieve with CBDCs and that it's possible that they're a solution in search for a problem. I mean, most consumers already spend digital money. That works very well in most places and while you can sort of understand the impulse for central banks to be using the latest technology and perhaps to want to replace physical cash with something else, CBDCs also do bring downsides and risks. It disrupts the way that the existing banking system operates. And I'd recommend that everyone reads Alice's special report from last year on this subject, in particular during times of financial crises, if it becomes very, very easy to, at the tap of a button on your mobile, switch from a deposit in Bank of America into a Fed-issued safe CBDC, then it makes bank runs easier. And even if outside of a crisis, if everyone wanted to hold this thing, it could disintermediate the banking system and put the government in a position where it has to allocate credit in the economy because it has all the deposits via the CBDC. So I'm looking for more clarity from central banks about what it is they're hoping to achieve with CBDCs. And only then, I think, can they really push it forward as a successful project. Well, it'll be very interesting to see how things unfold. Thank you both very much, Henry and Alice. Thanks, Tom. Thank you, Tom. And thank you for listening to The World Ahead. 
You can read more about these stories and other themes and trends for the coming year in our annual publication, The World Ahead 2022, which is on newsstands now and available online at economist.com slash worldahead2022. This podcast was produced by Ellie Clifford and Simon Jarvis. The executive producer was Sandra Schmueli. I'm Tom Standage. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist.